Um, you guys are in luck tonight. I have a gift. I have a gift here that is everything that your heart desires. Now you just think in your head, what is it that you want more than anything in life? I'm talking about life stuff. What do you want more than anything else? I've got it in this box. And this box is approved unto God. This box was designed to be mounted right up in here. God approves of this. God built it. God said it's for you to enjoy. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, but you could just use your imagination because it might be a little bit different across this crowd tonight. But what you most want is in that box. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin tonight, there's a reality to that, and that reality is, this is all of us. And so I'd like to start with this question, what is on your back? What are you carrying on your back tonight? That picture represents something, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard of this. In Roman times, Romans had a, a most extreme form of capital punishment. We're familiar with the cross. Uh, we're also familiar, or maybe some of you are not, that one of their forms of capital punishment was to sew a man inside of a bag with live wild animals and throw them in a river. This was saved for the worst of the worst. And what they would do is when they caught the murderer, this was for murder, when they caught the murderer, they would strap the, the victim's corpse on his back. And he had to carry that corpse. Now you can imagine what a corpse is going to do in the days pre-embalming, how bad that corpse is going to get really quick. It's going to start to rot and stink. And they had to carry that. And what happened was, is that rot would seep through into their own bodies. And they would die a miserable, painful, smelly death. So I ask you tonight, what do you have on your back this evening? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So as we think about that, about what is on our back, Jesus says if we have any sin in our life, we're a slave to that sin. So the Apostle Paul comes back and he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Paul was using this exact thing. Maybe he'd witnessed this. And that is exactly where we are at tonight when we carry our sin with us. If you've got sin in your heart tonight, if you've got unconfessed, unrepented sin, this is who you are. But don't, don't let that just depress you mightily because this is where all of us either have been and probably will be again. This is where we are outside of Jesus Christ. This is where we're at. So what is on your back tonight? You've had two days of, of some soul searching and thinking and some time in small groups. And I am pretty certain that the Holy Spirit has been active in this place. And He has revealed things in your hearts and in your minds that's a weight. 
And chances are, as soon as these kind of things start popping up, you know exactly what it is in your life. When we start talking about this stuff, there's things that go off in my mind, and I know exactly what weights I have a great tendency to put on. And maybe even some weights that I'm carrying around. Baggage. And ultimately what's happening is, is that rot and that filth from just a little sin, no big deal thing, it's a big deal, I'm using that as a metaphor, begins to leak, leach its poison into our souls. And we carry that weight. The bondage of sin is the body of death. So again, what is on your back tonight? The answer to that question, what's on your back tonight, is relative to what is in your heart. What is in your heart and what is in your mind, those two are inseparable, even though frequently, as Merle pointed out last night, frequently they fight. Frequently the heart and mind don't agree. But what is in your heart and in your mind tonight is going to come out at some point in some way and you've got something strapped to your back. So what's on your back is going to be what's in your heart and in your mind. You know what Jesus said about that? He was talking to a bunch of Pharisees one time and he says, You are whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Now that's pretty horrific. You know what's inside of a, a crypt or a tomb, especially pre-embalming. It was a lot of rotten, nasty stuff. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days and his sisters protested about opening that tomb because it was nasty. And it's unhealthy. Disease. That's what we are without Jesus Christ. What is in our heart, we're carrying on our back. Now you all look really nice to me and I don't know what you might be struggling with, what's in your heart or what's in your mind or how you think or how you're dealing with some of these things. But from what I, where I stand, I see a bunch of shiny apples. But the reality of it is, is I've lived long enough and I have enough life experience in me to recognize that this is probably present in this room. And if none of you brought it, maybe I did. Now tonight, we are going to explore a little bit about how sin works. How we go from this idea of a thought, a heart, to our back, to carrying a rotten corpse around with us, the baggage. So we're going to explore that a little bit, and tonight, in order to do that, we're going to need some help in a few minutes, so you can think about volunteering for that here in a few minutes. But to start with, as we begin, what happens is, is that sin starts with our admiration, that our admiration of this neat gift, this gift that God has ordained, that He said is okay. But then he puts some qualifiers on it. He puts some parameters around it. He says there's some things about this gift that's inappropriate. And it's up for us to figure out how that is. Some things, there's very defined parameters. Other things, maybe a little less so. But God has ordained this great gift. But as we sit and we look at that gift and we speculate about it and we dream about how wonderful that gift is and I can't wait to get that gift, after a while, that gift becomes so enticing that something begins to happen. 
my daily salvation kind of starts to flutter away because I am so fixated on that gift. After a while, my identity starts to float away because all I care about is that gift. Now the vine's still there, right? And the gift is on top of it. But you know, after we admire this thing long enough, well, I want it pretty bad. And you know, I know Jesus would not approve of what I'm thinking, what I, where I'm going in my mind with this thing. So maybe if I just hide him a little bit, he won't notice the games I play in my head with that gift. Now, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't play games in their head too far, too long, I'd kind of like to know who you are because I need some training. Most of us do a pretty good job. We've got good imaginations. When it's something that we want, it's not that hard to take that way too far. And we kind of cover Jesus up. Now, in order to work through this, let me work through this first slide a little bit first. First thing is, a sin draws you in. That's Samson, by the way, in case you hadn't figured that out. Sin draws you in. And you know, the thing that draws you is not necessarily the sin itself. In the case of Samson, let's read what it says about Samson. It says, And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman. Now we're going to give Samson the benefit of the doubt here for a minute and say that he had legitimate business in Timnath. He was a judge in Israel and Philistines were over in control. So maybe he legitimately needed to go to Timnath and get a tire fixed. You know, or buy a widget. Who knows? But he goes there and he saw a woman. Now there's nothing wrong there either. There's no sin there. God made men to notice women. If anybody in this room doesn't already know that, um, well, you do now. That is, that is God-ordained, God-designed, and we're going to get into that maybe tomorrow a little bit. But God, that's, there's nothing wrong there. But it kept enticing. And Samson began to play mind games. And Samson began to think about this and draw on this. And as he did, remember, Samson is a man of God. He did some wonky stuff, but he's still a man of God. He was ordained to lead the children of Israel since before he was conceived. And he knew it. And I think he, in his heart he wanted to do it. But you know, he began to play these mind games and I think the Spirit of God showed up on Samson and told Samson the same exact thing that he told Cain. And it's the same exact thing that he tells you and I. When we get too fixated on that gift, what he says is, is, look out, sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. There's always some red flags. There's always some warnings. There's always something that gives us a speed bump on the way to grabbing that gift. Samson, I'm inter I'm, my imagination's working here, but I, well, in fact, I'm really certain that happened because we know that Samson went back home and interacted with his parents, and we'll get to that in a minute. But as we think about what's happening right here, sin draws... And so now Samson's noticed and everything's okay at that point. We're going to assume it is. And his sin is crouching at his door, eager to control. Now, James tells us that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. 
A man is tempted when he's drawn away. He's drawn too far. Some of that natural attraction in the case here that we're talking about, this man and this woman, him noticing her, him being attracted to her, was not where the problem was. The problem was he didn't let it leave it there. As we know, according to Old Testament and according to Samson's life, she was forbidden for him. She was a Philistine woman. But the, just forget that for a moment. But she was forbidden, but he wasn't willing to let that alone. And so he kept on going. Now, I need a couple of volunteers to help me out. And I want to thank uh, Dale and Joanna for being voluntold to come help us. So he'll both come up here. And we are going to work our way through this. Um, I think the easiest thing for me is probably just have you two stand right here. You can kind of stay out of the screen light or just right in front. Um, you don't have to act too much like you like each other, but you know, whatever. Okay, so this right here, this is just the warning sign. Lights are starting to go off, flags are starting to go up, that hey, we got some problems here. By the way, disclaimer, I didn't bring you up here because of this. It's just, you, I asked how many, I asked if there's any other couples, and they said no at this point that anybody knew about. So, any other couples here want to volunteer, they might be able to work out a deal with you. Okay, sin draws. Well, the next thing that happens is, is sin begins to bind us up. Now, Dale, you're, are you the righty or the lefty in your family? Well, one of the lefts. You're one of the lefts. Okay, give me your right hand. Okay, just stick your fingers out. And I'm just going to tape these two little finger, these two fingers together like that. And Joanna, I'm going to do that to you too. Are you right or left? I want your left, that's your, I'm upside yeah. down, put them together. I'm going to try to tape them loose so it comes off a little bit easier. <laughs> okay, well sin begins to bind them. But you know, it's their offhand, it's their two little, their two, you know, I don't know what you call them, the little finger and ring finger. You know, how crippled are you right now? What could you really not do in your lives bound up as you are at the moment? Probably not, not too much. Okay, well, sin doesn't just stop with your little fingers. Because after a while, hold the hand out again, same hand. After a while, put your hand kind of like that. Yeah, after a while, you, you know, it kind of comes along and does a little bit more. Kind of put it like that. Yeah. I'm trying to disable your hand if you haven't yeah. figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, don't push too hard. I don't want you coming undone quite yet. <laughs> okay, but that's, you know, okay, you're still, you're kind of crippled now. There's some limitations. Um, you know, you're going to have a hard time conducting music, you know, like Anthony does. And, you know, there are limitations here to all of this. This is where Samson went next. Because Samson went back home, and he told his father, now therefore get her for me. She was forbidden for him. We understand that. But he wasn't done because he was blinded by her. He saw her beauty or whatever it was that drew her to him to her. And he was blinded by lust. We can be blinded by lots of things besides lust. In the case of Samson, that's what it was. But covetousness and envy and bitterness and anger and jealousy and all kinds of things, when sin is crouched at our door, the blinders start to go on. And all of a sudden, we can't see very well. You know, it didn't just stop with this woman he saw at Timnath. If you remember the story, she died. They got married, she died. Or maybe uh, she died, I don't remember if it was right before or right after. 
But after a while in the story, we get to Delilah. So this thing has progressed. He's got a pattern of behavior now. This first lady, at least they were getting married, and it seemed respectable. Now he's on to Delilah, a known harlot. And what was Delilah's whole goal? Was to entice him. She was after him to see where his great strength lies. Beyond that, she pressed him daily so that his soul was vexed, and he told her all of his heart. Now, just a little bit of a tangential point. After you've had every lie that Samson told her, she did to try to cripple him. Now, how many times would you have to go through that before you said, you know, this woman is trying to hurt me? I would think after one, but he was so blind, he couldn't see it. He is so bound up that he could not see it. Now, you're going to really be my guinea pig. Put your hands together. Um, I'm going to do it on your shirt, Steve, so don't pull too much hair. <laughs> now, Dale here is our Mr. Samson. He is strong. Okay, he's, he's still just hanging on to this thing. And it's, it's blinding him. And he can't see. Oh, I forgot the blind. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of my story. By the way, you're supposed to be blind, not bound yet. Okay. You don't have a hairdo to worry about, do you? Can you breathe? Yep. Okay. Joanna, I'm going to be, I don't know for sure. I don't want to mess you up. So my thought was, I just lay it over like that. Is that okay? Yeah. You do it or have one of these other girls do it. I just don't want you to be able to see. Okay, so they're both blinded. They're maybe, maybe not about the same thing. Maybe about different things. Maybe Joanna is blinded by one thing and Dale's blinded by something else. But right now they're both bound and they're both blind. So then what happens? He told him all of his heart and, what, and then what happened? After he told her his heart, first thing that happens, they put out his eyes. They put out Samson's eyes as soon as they had him in control. That is step one. Well, if you want to think about what that looks like, the Bible, the New Testament talks about that as thorny ground. And the cares of this world, all the busyness, all the hubbub, all the stuff, the deceitfulness of riches, the accumulation of stuff, and the lusts of other things. In the case of Samson, it was a man lusting after a woman. Okay? These things entering in, they choke off the Word. Samson knew the Word of God. He was raised in it. He was ordained for it. He was chosen. He knew it. But he was so blind by this point that he didn't really care. And so he kept on going. Well, the next thing that happens is, is sin binds. Now, Joanna, um, I'm going to stay with you. Um, you know, I want you to bend down a little bit and put your legs together. I'm going to tape, you know, stand up, stay stand up, just kind of bend over. So I want to tape your wrists to your knees. Now, jo Joanna, we're only going to a little bit cripple you, but not too bad. But this, this deal with Dale's got going, I'm trying to get this choker on you, if I can. This thing that Dale's got going in his life, and this is not men versus women. This is just a reality. We could swap the roles here. Joanna, I'd like your other arm. Slide it over here. Put that on. They continue to like each other, but Dale is continually binding himself worse and worse into sin, and he's getting more and more crippled. Part of the problem is, is Joanna may or may not know that. 
and they are falling madly in love and together. And there comes a day after a while when maybe they get married and Dale, you start just start walking. He has to, oh, hey, whoa, whoa, we're not breaking chains yet. Okay, well, you stay together. Just pretend you're locked together. They're trying to walk, and they're trying to see me make it to the back of the room. Okay? You see, it doesn't, okay, okay. Really, you're going to come back. Just, it doesn't work very good. We're almost done. Okay. We're getting close. Just stand, you just stand right, turn around. There you, there you go. That's the direction. Okay, you come this way. Right there. Stop. Whoa. Good boy. <laughs> okay, sin has bound them up, and it says that his strength went out from him. The Word of God was in him. Now it's not available anymore. The power of the Word of God is completely locked up inside of Samson. What happened? She caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head, and he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. He didn't even know it. He had trickled down this road one little thing at a time, just a little finger here and, oh, just my offhand, and then pretty soon it's my left elbow, and he never even realized how bad it was getting. And the, Lord, the power of the Lord went away from him, and he didn't even know it. So what happened then? It says they bound him with fetters of brass. They put out his eyes, and then they bound him with fetters of brass. That's the next thing. The New Testament says... To whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of obedience unto righteousness, whether of sin unto death, or obedience unto righteousness. You are the servants of the games you play in your mind. Because it's going to come out in your life. Dale's stuck. Joanna's less stuck, but she's still stuck because we pretended they got married and she's hobbled to him. So as weak as he is, she's also weakened. It'd be okay if you got married in real life too, but that's, you know, we're just, we're pretending for tonight. Because I don't think Dale's got hopefully not bound up this bad, nor is Joanna. And that's why we're here is to get unbound. That's where we're going. But this is where sin leads us to, and this is the progression of sin. The last thing is, sin grinds. Again, his strength went out, but let's go on. They brought him to Gaza, bound with fetters and brass, and he did grind in the prison house. And, you know, I'm going to be merciful. You can take your hoods off. <laughs> Thank you. Give him a round of applause. That was good. Thank you. Oh, you can have it. You want a memory uh, thing? Yeah. <laughs> Sin ground away. And then it even went so far. What happened? They had a big party to celebrate and, and worship their God. And they had their worst enemy in captivity. He was grinding grain. And let's call for Samson that he may make us a sport. Let's get him up there and let's laugh at him and poke fun of him and mock him and hurt him for how bad he's hurt us over the years. So ended, ended up what, where this all ends up is he self-destructed. He said, let me die with the Philistines, and he self-destructed. That's where he ended up. And sin will do that to you and I tonight. We will self-destruct. We'll implode. And there is, after a while, there's no remnant left of the man that once was, or the woman. I'm using man generically tonight. There's no remnant left of what once was. And you know, that all started right over here. 
this precious gift. There's half your chain. There's the other half of the chain. Um, this precious gift that they wanted so bad is where it all began. And it was a good thing. Young folks, we've had a big day. That, for tonight, is your marriage. I presume that the majority of you would like to get married. If not, you can put another name on this box. You want it. We all want it. That's what you'd like to have. Or it could be something else, and that's okay. But we spent quite a bit of time this afternoon talking about moral purity. Why is moral purity a problem? Because humanity wants it. God ordained it. God designed it. God made it a beautiful thing. I'm giving you a little bit of a preview into tomorrow's talk. It was a good thing. It was a beautiful thing. When the vine is revealed and the branches are on the vine and everything is in order. When it gets out of order, then we want it so badly. Whatever that happens to be in your life, whatever it is, when we want it so badly, that's where you're headed. Is ultimately to self-destruct. The Bible says, lest there's anybody here that thinks that they don't fall into this somewhere, it says there is none righteous, no, not one. Most of us in this room tonight are, would be included in the no, not ones. Okay, we're not the no, not nuns. We're the, we're the, we're the ones that, that have it. And for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. We've all lusted after that box and that box may change over time. I'm married, but I still have a box that I can lust after really easy. And I know I've got some trigger points that set me off. Because that box is always there. It might change based on the, the stage in life you're in and your age, but it's still there. I don't know who's the oldest here tonight, Pastor Merle or Russ or... I don't Who's the oldest back there? Tom? Tom? Do you still have a box in your life? Absolutely. Can that box get you in trouble? Absolutely. Merle? Yes. Russ? Yes. Any of the rest of the staff? Yes. Young folks, this is real. The problem is the world doesn't acknowledge that that box was for you, for a purpose. It was God-ordained in His order. Whatever that box is in your life. None righteous, no, not one. We've all lusted after the box. And what does the Bible say? For the wages of sin is death. 100% of the time, the wages of sin is death. We talked about this yesterday. The default destiny of mankind is eternal death. We're all headed for physical death. That's not maybe such a mystery. But if you have sin in your life... And since we're human, we have or have had sin in our life, and it's very easy to get it back and accumulate it and carry that rod on our back. We are headed for death. That is where it's at. Now, so far tonight, this has been rather gloomy. This isn't the fun stuff, but this is the real stuff. Because this is where we live. But we have another reality to throw into this mix. And that is, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. That's a reality too. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Because that is even more real than my sin. And it trumps my sin when I go in faith to Jesus Christ. It trumps it every time. Because Jesus has the authority to deal with my sin. We know this. This is not rocket science so far. We all understand this. We've had two days, three days, if you were in Ellensburg and heard Anthony preach. You've had, you, all your lives, since you were little children, as far as I know, everybody here was born in a Christian home. I might be mistaken, but for the most part, all of us were raised on the theology that I just showed you. The wages of sin is death, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe everybody here has made a commitment to Jesus Christ, so you believe this. The problem is, we still have this shiny box hanging around. And we're still attracted to the box. Us coming to faith in Jesus Christ did not change our appetite for that box. And depending on our trigger points, what sets us off, that box can look mighty appealing. In fact, that box might hold all the answers for your life in that moment. That's how it feels. And I suspect all of you have experienced that. So I'd like to ask a question then. What do we do now? We know all this stuff. But what if there is a good chance, in fact, I'll go further than that. I am certain tonight that in a room with a crowd this size of about 70 of us or so, there is at least one or more of you that feel like one of these people. Falling off the cliff, or maybe you feel like you already fallen off the cliff and hit the rocks. And nobody knows it, nobody cares. Hanging by a thread, hanging by a fingernail, prodigal son, a wounded warrior. I don't think I would be stretching things very far to say that there's somebody in this room that matches that picture and you identified with it. In fact, you probably identified with it quicker than I, turned, than I explained it. And you're asking yourself, how did I end up here? Well, when you ask that question, you kind of know because you know about this box. You know your attraction to the box. You know some of your trigger points. You know things that are going on in your life, circumstances and whatnot. And you kind of know your pathway. You can remember. Now, you can justify and you can explain your way around that. But when we're really honest with ourselves, we, we kind of know how we got there. You know, a drunk guy knows that he drank too many beers. Now, he might tell you he didn't drink too many beers, but ultimately, that's what got him drunk. When we get here, we kind of know. Because we're not talking about somebody that was picked up and carried to the cliff and thrown over. We're talking about somebody that fell off the cliff, that walked off the cliff. So I know all the theology. I know that sin ultimately ends in death. I know that I can have victory in Jesus. I get all that. But how come I'm not experiencing it? How come this is me? Well, I'd like to give you two scripture passages. The first one I included because it's a warning to believers. And the reason I'm throwing this in there, this passage is directed more at unbelievers, which isn't really our focus tonight. But the first part of this passage is, is a warning to believers. And it goes like this. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, If the gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. If you are so busy chasing this box and carrying your own weight of sin, you can't see people that need you. And there are dying people all around us, dying, carrying that morbid body on their back that need you. 
They need your testimony. They need your hand. They need your love. They need your encouragement. Because they don't know Jesus. They don't know the, all the doctrine stuff we just went through. They don't understand how chasing this box got them on this bondage. I mean, they might know because some of this just breaks mankind's morals, moral law. But understanding all the theology and the, what's going on in the heart and the mind and in the soul, they don't get it. But if you're chasing the box, you can't help them. If, you can't, if you're chasing the box, you can't help the person sitting right beside you tonight that's dying because they just fell off a cliff. Because you're busy chasing a box. That passage goes on, and it tells why they're lost. It says, In whom the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan's running around, and he's got his hands over their eyeballs, and his, ears, his fingers stuck in their ears, going, na, 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 na. And the message is out there, but they're not seeing it. But sometimes all it takes is to, for someone like you, any of us, to come alongside and say something, be kind, help them out, do whatever. And maybe they pull a finger out. Or maybe they ask you ladies, what's that little white thingy on your head? You know, or maybe they ask you guys, you know, it is impressive to see a bunch of guys running around with no ink on their skin. That's a rarity where I live. Girls too, for that matter. It's a rarity to see young people dressed where I come from. At least in the summertime. You stick out. And we got a bunch of people running around with Satan's hands over their eyes and his fingers in their ears. And they are in trouble. They're doing this. Suicide rate in the United States is massive because there's so many people right here. And all it takes to stop them is one of you. And if you're busy chasing the box, they died. So I would like to think through now, what now? For tonight, maybe this is one of you. For tonight, maybe it's somebody sitting beside you. Somebody in this room fits these pictures. Maybe some of you know who that is. I don't. That's okay. I don't need to know. But if you know, how do you help? If this is you, how do you get it fixed? We want to think about how did the prodigal son come home? How did this kid, we just saw his picture, sitting in a pig pen, gaunt, sickly, starving to death, smelling like a pig, looking like a pig, acting like a pig, how did he get home? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us, this is a fantastic phrase, when he came to himself. You know what that means? That means he found out that box wasn't very good, and he started to remember what he had been taught. He came to himself. He remembered his father's house. He remembered the lessons his father taught him. He remembered that his father probably wept as he watched him walk away and called him as long as his voice would carry to please come back. Maybe his father chased after him for miles trying to just reason with this young man. Pleading with him, saying, you know, son, I, I've given you my fortune. That, I don't care about that. I can build another one. I can lose it. It don't matter. But I want you to come home. Maybe the dad walked all the way to the foreign city. Maybe the dad had been to the foreign city a number of times. And just rejection. 
But this prodigal son, he came to himself. And what that means, he was honest about himself to himself. That is a key point if you want off of that, off of that cliff, is you've got to be honest with yourself about yourself. I am in a sin problem. That's me. Now, maybe there's, con there's other things, there circumstances that drove me that direction, but you are responsible for chasing the box. No matter what kind of things in the background prompted it. Now, there's, there's areas here tonight, there's things here tonight that I know play into this that's way above my pay grade. I am not a psychologist, I'm not a counselor, so there's things I recognize. Things like abuse and, and stuff like that can, can make this worse. I'm just talking about normal life. If you've got that kind of stuff, please seek some help. It's way over my head. Maybe some of you back there can help with that. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about you and I living our lives, doing our thing, and chasing boxes, and we find ourselves in a pig pen, and we've got to be honest that we got ourselves there. Second thing is, this young man had to remember how good it was at his father's house. Remember, he's starving in a pig pen, and he remembers his father had plenty. What that means is he recognized that his father had the solutions for his problems. Is this analogy working out okay with our spiritual walk and all that? We're not deviating very far from what the Bible says is exactly how God is, are we? When we remember that God is faithful, when we remember that God has the solution to our problems... I will arise and go to my father's house. I have met people in my life that are stuck in pig pens in horrible situations and they will tell you about it and they will weep about it and feel bad about it and refuse to ever leave the pig pen. Or maybe they get outside the pig pen and I'm just more comfortable back there. It is a long, hard road back to father's house. And you know what? I might meet somebody I used to know and I would be embarrassed because I smell like a pig. I don't care. You're dying in the pig pen. So you smell like a pig. That's, that's minor compared to dying in the pig pen. He got up and he went. Whatever shame, whatever guilt, whatever mess he was, he committed and he resolved to see it through. Now, in his mind, he was facing rejection when he got home. He had no idea. But he resolved that he knew his father had the answers, and he was going to die trying. Last, that was the last gasp for this young man. I am no more worthy. You know how hard it is to make that statement? I am no more worthy. Most of us have some sort of image we want to maintain. And maybe not all of that is bad, but to get to a point where I am no more worthy of my father's attention. That's what this kid was thinking. His father didn't say that, but that's what he was thinking. He was so far down in that pig pen, he was going to go back on his hands and knees and volunteer to feed pigs for his father, even though his father wouldn't have had pigs. He humbled himself and he submitted himself to the mighty hand of his father. Whatever his father doled out, even death, was, was preferable over that pig pen. Even if the judgment was death, the father probably legitimately could have put this kid to death. He'd been unfaithful. He'd probably committed fornication. That was a death sentence at that time. All kinds of issues. He didn't know. Other he knew his father. He remembered his father. But he didn't know him. It's been a long time since he'd been around him. And maybe his father had changed, at least in his mind. 
And when he finally got to the Father, he confessed. He confessed to the Father. He confessed his unworthiness. These two go very close together. However, this one he's willing to submit to whatever God wanted from him, or his Father wanted from him. In this one he recognized his Father's authority to carry out judgment. That's how the prodigal son went home. If you have been chasing boxes, and tonight you've got a burden and a bag of sin on your back, and you are crawling around, or maybe you're back there falling off a cliff, or you feel like a wounded warrior with a bunch of arrows sticking out of your back, and you're just trying to hang on, and you really hope nobody notices that on the inside you are falling apart and life is a disaster. There's your process. It all is about the Father. When he, when he came to himself, he was honest about himself, but he also remembered the Father. He'd forgotten about the Father. He's out of money and he was, he was just partying it up for a while. You know, Dad's an old fuddy-duddy. Until all of a sudden, Dad wasn't a fuddy-duddy. Dad was a wise man. And Dad had the solution for his problems. Let's think about what the Father said. Now, if you remember in the story, the Father, he did what? He did a lot of good things, right? He didn't throw him out. He did a lot of good stuff. Yet a great way off. The Bible says in that account, yet a great way off. The father saw him. The father was looking for this young man to come home. I see this father standing at the window every day. Maybe this father had sent servants down the road. You just stand down there and I will pay you to stand there. And when you see him, you send up the smoke signal. This father was waiting for him. This father knew that the only way he would ever see his son again is if his son came home. Where we live in Modesto, I suppose it's the same up here. Maybe you're colder, so it's not as bad. But we have a lot of homeless. Where I live, to where school and church and whatnot is at, we go through probably one of the worst areas in town. And I don't know, I don't think I'd be exaggerating to say we'd say, see between 50 and 100 people in a seven-mile stretch from my house to the freeway on any given trip. Day, night, hot, cold, doesn't matter. We see them. And I'll, oftentimes, sometimes they're just the old classic wino that we think of in our mind. Old people, they've got addiction problems. But more and more, I see you guys. I see young people that are your age that have lost their teeth, their hair's falling out, they're about that big around, and they are a wreck of humanity because of drugs, because of meth. And maybe it started with an abusive parent, a tyrant of a dad or an abusive dad in some way. I don't know where it started. Maybe it started with acceptance issues. Maybe it started chasing the shiny box. It doesn't matter. But I see people on the street that are my children's age, which are your age. And you know what breaks our hearts? Many of them have a mom and dad somewhere. Every one of those kids is somebody's child. And more than likely, those parents, if they care, have no idea where their child's at. California is a destination state for the homeless because we pay them and we do a lot of things for them. And we got good climate. You can live outside year-round. But that is somebody's child. 
And young folks, it's not that far of a stretch to say it could be you. You chase the box long enough, it might be you. And maybe it'll be your mom and dad wondering, where are they at tonight? Are they even alive tonight? What could I do to get my child home? I don't care if he stinks like a pig. I don't care if he's tatted up. I don't care if he's in dreadlocks. I don't care what he is, just bring my boy home. That's this father. And if you think Father God is any different, you're mistaken. He's standing there looking and waiting for any of us to come home. We don't have to carry that bag of sin and that rot and that filth. We don't have to do it. The difference is God does know where we're at. That's one difference between that and this story. But the analogy is exactly the same. God is looking for you, waiting for you to come home if that is you tonight that is dying under that load of sin. The father had compassion on him. His kid stunk. And maybe he, by this time he'd lived a hard life. Who knows what he was bringing home with him. Maybe he had AIDS. Maybe he had some other STD. Maybe he experienced our modern culture and he lived in Yakima or Ellensburg or Modesto or Pasco or wherever else all you guys are from and he had some gender issues and when he walked into his father's house he wore the only clothes he had and it was a woman's clothes. The father had compassion on him. There is no sin in your life that is too bad for the father. I don't care what it is. There is nothing too big where God's going to just when you make it to the father's house the guys are going to say, well, I would have welcomed you home, but man, those dreadlocks just bother me. You either go get that fixed, and then you come back. That is not what God does. God does not do that. He was concerned for the welfare of his son. He had compassion on him. Let's go to the next one. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This kid that smelled like a pig, that was dirty and gone and sick and everything else, the father ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. You don't get much closer than that. The Father is not afraid of your sin. He can deal with your sin. He is not scared of your sin. Why? Because He has authority over it. The Father, we're going to get to it in a minute, the Father cleaned Him up. The Father is never scared of your sin. And we shouldn't be scared of Him. Next thing, the Father brought a robe and the ring and the shoes. He cleaned him up. He confirmed him again as a son with the ring. And he set him back on his feet. And that is exactly how your heavenly father will treat you when you are willing to take your sin and dump it in his lap. I met a man several years ago, somebody I used to run around with in young folks. And this man had a horrible auto accident, bad experience, 20 years ago, maybe, and left him with some really serious brain damage. I just happened to bump into him. We were back in Ohio visiting Bethany's family, and I was out by myself tooling around, stopped at a Chipotle, and went in and got lunch, sat down, ate my lunch, and I'm walking out, and I hear, hey, Chris, 
I, they, they left our fellowship a long time ago. I haven't seen them for years. And it was this man and his wife. This man's brain damage is such that it was a miracle he was even inside the restaurant because it tweaked his brain in a way where he has, he has overload, uh, sensory overload, visual and auditory. So he wears blind man glasses and earplugs all the time. Because even when I was talking to him, we went out to his car and we sat in his car and talked. If someone would walk by 50 feet away on the sidewalk, he'd be talking. And all of a sudden, he'd just jerk to a stop and he would track them. And when they disappeared, then we'd go back to the conversation if he could remember where we were. Or somebody would slam a car door and it would just stop him until he got it figured out. But he taught me an amazing lesson. I hadn't seen him since his accident. This was my first experience with him. And he says, you know what, Chris? Our God is a big God, and he can handle your problems. He says, I go into the throne room angry sometimes. I go in hurting. I go in dirty. I go in smelly. I go in however I am. And you know what God does with that? Do you know what God does when we go in angry and hurt and upset and, and freaked out and dirty? You know what God does? God does the same thing we all do with an angry, squalling little child that's hurt. They got their feelings hurt. They got their toes stepped on. Picks us up, sets us on his lap, calms us down, and we figure out the problem. That is your Father in heaven that will do that. I don't care what your sin is. God can handle it. If you've got a problem, take it to God. It's the only way you can deal with it and get rid of it. And you know what he will do? He will clean you up, he will confirm you, and he will set you back on your feet. Every time. This is not a one-time trick. This isn't your get-out-of-jail-free card that you get in the Monopoly game. Maybe once, twice if you're lucky. You see, Jesus has to live by the same rules that he gave Peter 70 times 7. If we're willing to go back 70 times 7 into that throne room, he will pick us up, clean us up, and confirm us every time. The father was excited with that this wretch of a man, this wreck of a man came home. My son was dead and he is, he is alive. He was lost and he's found. Let's throw a party. Your father in heaven does the same thing. What's the Bible say? It says the angels in heaven do rejoice. Why? When one sinner, one of us, one of you, one of anybody takes their garbage of sin and dumps it in the throne room and says, I can't do it. I give up. And heaven throws a party. Why? The dead is alive. The lost is found. Every time for everyone. Your sin, your problem, your burden, your hurt is not too big to dump in God's feet. He's been dealing with this for 6,000 plus years now. And whatever you've got, he's seen it before, I guarantee it. Hurt, pain, abuse, broken hearts, lust, moral failure. I mean, we could just go on all night about the different stuff. God can handle it. But you've got to go home. Now, what happens? What happens when the prodigal son is too sick to get home? Some of you in, El in uh, Zilla heard this last Sunday a little bit. 
What happens when the prodigal son waited a little bit too long? And he came to himself and he desired, he remembered his father. He remembered the goodness of his father. and He would give anything to get back to the father. But this kid's been living in a land of famine. He's been eating pig, pig food, living in a pig pen, gone it up. He's got AIDS. He struggles with a meth addiction. He's got a crippled leg. And he is in the pig pen. And he's stuck. What about that guy? Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're crippled enough and hurting enough that you want to go, but you can't get out of the pig pen by yourself. Or maybe you know somebody that's stuck. They want to get out, but they can't do it by themselves. I'd like to introduce you to a new parable. The prodigal son meets the good Samaritan. You will not find this in the four Gospels. The prodigal son meets the good Samaritan. You remember the story of a good Samaritan? And we're going to turn the tables here just for a moment. We're not talking about us as the prodigal now for a moment. We're going to take the other side of the coin because our friend is stuck in a pig pen. One key thing you got to know about that. If your friend really doesn't want out of the pig pen, you can stand on the outside and encourage him. You can hold the gate open for him. But if you go in after him, when he doesn't want to leave, you will end up stuck in the pig pen too. Wisdom is knowing the difference. That's why I'm just I'm interrupting my own talk. When you have that kind of scenario as young folks, you've got older, wiser people back here that have been around the block at least once to help you through that. And the multitude of counselors, their safety. Someone, maybe they say the right things, but they really are just trying to get attention and they really want some company in the pig pen. And they will drown you in there. Okay, back to our story. Prodigal son, he gets enough strength and he heads home. He's coming from, well, that was the Damascus Road, I believe. So he somehow rather got on the Damascus Road. And why any thief in their right mind would rob a crippled, smelly, gone it up, cross-dressing, sick, broke guy is beyond me. But apparently they were out for practice. So he ends up laying alongside the road and he is dying right there. With no assistance, he is going to die right there and never make it back to the father's house. He's trying. He wants to go. He gave, he's, he's gone as far as he physically can go to get there. He's done. His heart's still beating, but barely. And along comes the priest. Good old Mr. Priest, the righteous guy that preaches to us every Sunday. And he comes along and he sees this young man and he says, oh, that's little Fred. I remember Fred because he was the village boy. And you know, I preached to him and I told him and I told him and I instructed him in the ways of righteousness. And when he took his father's money and headed out, I intersected him and I told him this was going to happen. And shame on him and it's too bad about you. You're getting your just desserts. And the priest walks on. Levite's the next guy. Levites are legalists. That means they never forget anything. That means they never forget how people act and they can imagine wrongs and hurts and all that. So Mr. Levite walks up and he too recognizes the kid as being the local village kid that he remembers. And he looks at him for a while and says, boy, 
He sure reminds me of his dad when he was his age. And boy, I remember how his grandpa used to act. And you know, I knew this family would end up here. It just took a while to get here. But I've been watching this family for a long time and maybe the training wasn't quite right at home and, and he found all kinds of reasons and it's too bad that it had to end up with you and you're stuck, but your family sins, here you are. And he walks on. The Good Samaritan comes along and he also recognizes this young man, but he recognizes him a little bit differently. He remembers him as the village bully. He remembers him as the little rich kid running around that was always mocking him because he's a Samaritan. He's a half-breed. He's not one of the real righteous, cool guys. He remembers him making fun of him and picking on him and bullying him and maybe even abusing him and taking advantage of him. That Samaritan, when he looked at that kid laying on the road, had every justifiable reason to walk away. Maybe even kick him in the head as he walked away. But that's not what he did. He picked him up. He cleaned him up. And he took him to the father's house. But I have a question to think about. By the time that good Samaritan got that kid home, would you have been able to tell which one was the smelly, dirty, injured one that just came out of a pig pen? Because that Samaritan gave that kid that had all of his clothes stripped off his own clothes. And that Samaritan in manhandling that kid had pig all over him too. And that Samaritan had that kid's blood on him. And that Samaritan was wiped out. And maybe he was hurt too because he gave up his donkey. Could you have told which one was which? But you know what? They both get back to the father's house. And that is the key. If it's one of your friends, someone you know, someone you can help, it's not cost free to help. It can be painful, extremely painful to help and very costly. I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about time and energy and getting involved in somebody else's life is messy. And I suspect that that Samaritan, once he started helping that kid, he probably had some second thoughts along the way. It's like, how did I get myself tangled up in this? Why did I do this? I needed to, I had an appointment. How do we get out of all this? We make it back to the father's house. How do we deal and get rid of the sin? I'm going to give you a little acronym here. Confession equals acts. What time am I done? Confession equals acts. It's an acrostic. Number one, if you want to get back and get rid of your load of sin, if you want to get back to the Father, if you are tired of carrying this garbage around in your life, and it's time to get free from sin, and you're just done with this, the first thing you've got to do is acknowledge. Acknowledge means that what I am doing is sin. We are the masters at twisting that around and finding some excuse or justifying why sin in my life is not sin. 
This morning in our talk, we talked about what are we? We're a purchased possession, right? We're the temple of God. We're a tool that He designed for a special purpose. Anything that does not enhance those things, those, those characteristics, is a sin. Now, I will confess to you there's some gray stuff in there, but by and large, everything in life, especially as it relates to Bible school, when we are together and we're talking about things of the heart and of the mind and of the soul, the first thing we have to do is recognize that what I'm doing, that load of junk on my back, is sin. It's not there because it's not sin. If it's not sin, it's not there. Acknowledge. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's the standard. That's what we're called to live up to. Anything below that standard is sin. And you know what? God has every right to call it that. God has every right to establish that baseline. Because why? Because He's holy. And He created us in His image. We've been hearing about that. And since He did that, then He established the standard of righteousness for man, even though we can't hit it, is still holiness. Everything else is sin. And that's why He sent Jesus. Because man couldn't do it. If man could do it, we didn't need Jesus. Right? Without Jesus, you're carrying your load. Baptized, church, doesn't matter. If you're not a converted believer tonight that's met Jesus Christ somewhere in your life and had an encounter with Jesus, I'm not talking about a violent encounter like Paul, but you and Jesus had a uh, come to Jesus meeting. If you don't know him, that word know in scripture is the word epinosis. Epinosis, first of all, is the word gnosis. I'm getting in Pete's world here. If you don't know if he's down here, and I just love it. This is my one word I got, Pete, epinosis. <laughs> gnosis is knowledge. The epa part, what that does is that changes knowledge into relationship. That I may know him. That's epinosis. That's relationship. That's communion with the Father. Everything outside of that, because He's holy, is sin. That pack on my back is sin. Number two, I confess. I confess that that junk on my back, my problem is sin, and sin is my problem. It's not someone else's fault. I'm not the product of my environment, which we, we are to an extent, but the sin part is mine. It's my sin. And sin is my problem. That's sin on my back. And I own it. If we don't own our sin, we have nothing to confess for. Right? Because it's not sin. It's not my sin. I'm carrying it around, but I'm carrying yours. Can't, I can't carry your sin. So that sin on my back is my sin. And I put it there because I chased the shiny box. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, if we own it that that's my sin, and I did it, and it is sin, he's what? What's the next word? Faithful. He's faithful. Every time. There's not one time in 2,000 years since Jesus told us the story of the prodigal son where the story ended with the father wasn't home that day. 
Not one time was the kid in too bad a shape that the father took a look at him and shut the door. Not one time. How many times has that story been told in the last 2,000 years? Thousands and thousands of times, and the account has never changed. The father is always waiting. He's always ready. He's always faithful. He's always just, and he will forgive us, and he will cleanse us. We don't have to carry that garbage on our back anymore. Every time the story ends the same, the father is waiting. And he wants it because he can deal with it. First, uh, First John 2, 1, second part of that, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we're a little scared of God the Father, because he seems, you know, he's, he's kind of the, of the three, he's in my mind anyway. I know this is incorrect theology, I recognize that, but who wants to fall into the hands of the Almighty God? You know, it's a little scary. But we got somebody else. We got Jesus who came and lived and as a man and was tempted in, in like points as we are that all the garbage on my back he was tempted with. I don't care what you're tempted with tonight. Sin A to Z, Jesus experienced it. You might say, well, Jesus did not experience my temptation. Jesus, and I said sin, I meant temptation. Jesus did not experience my temptation. I mean, he, it's too bad. It's too far out. It's too radical. Young folks, Jesus experienced your temptation. Jesus knew what was in your box, and it attracted him too. If it didn't, then those temptations by the devil were just a facade. It was just a game. Those were legitimate, real temptations. When he was hanging on the cross... And they were mocking him and said, well, if you're really who you say you are, you come off that cross. Do you think that wasn't a temptation? Do you think it was not a real temptation for him to call down the legions of angels and just strike the earth with fire? Do you think he wasn't tempted when James and John wanted to call down fire on some people? Do you think he wasn't tempted with lust of the flesh? He was. You think he wasn't tempted with homosexuality? He was. Or whatever other issue you might have. Covetousness, time-wasting, pornography, adultery. He was tempted. Yet without sin. And that is our advocate. He was tempted... And he did it right. And he is our lawyer, if you will. And he died for your sin. So when you come into the Father's throne room with your bag of sin, and, and Satan, Satan is the accuser of the brethren who stands before God accusing them night and day. And you come into the throne room and you've got this pack on your back that's killing you and you dump it in the throne room with a thud and it splatters all over the place and smells the place up and Satan's sitting back there saying, yeah, he said he was one of yours. She said, she looked like, yeah, God, that's one of your people. And Jesus said, yep, that's right. That's one of mine. And I died for them. And that junk on the floor, I already dealt with in Gethsemane when I looked in that cup. And that junk is no more and it's gone. And we're free. Not because of what we did. 
but because of what he did and who he is. He is sufficient to be our identity. He is sufficient. I have that backwards, I believe. But he is our sufficiency. He's our daily, I'm, I'm getting myself mixed up. What was it? Our daily sacrifice. Daily salvation. Sorry. He's only sacrificed once. He's our daily salvation. He's our identity. And he's our advocate. Standing in that throne room as God, with God, God gave him the right to judge. And he's advocating for you and me. He says, this is one of mine. All of us in this room who have named his name, who believe on his name and what he's done, are one of his. And he knows you're carrying that stuff on your back. And he's standing there just longing for you to come home. Just waiting for you to come home. T. Change your ways. Get out of the pig pen. Own the sin, or acknowledge that it is sin. Own the sin, now change your ways. Do something different. If that shiny box is, is, is your problem, and you know your trigger points, figure out how to work around the trigger points. We're blessed in our generation. we got cell phones. When you're tempted, all you have to do is speed dial somebody and say, I'm, I'm tempted. I am drawn to that right now. And I suspect that every one of us has a number of people that we could trust. For you young folks, hopefully your parents, maybe that's a hard phone call to make, call up to your dad and say, you know what, Dad, um, I, am, I got some downtime, my phone is laying here, and I am tempted to go to websites I shouldn't. But there's nobody that, for any of you, I'm picking on the men, I'm stereotyping here a bit, but there is nobody in the world that would rather get that phone call than your parents. I would give anything to have my children call me with a phone call like that. I'm not there yet, Dad, but I'm really close. Because I can back him away from the cliff. And I can help him get to the Father's house before he falls off the cliff. But I don't know when those moments come in his life all the time. Now, I know he calls some other people, and that's great too. It's not obligatory, he calls me. That what's obligatory is you call somebody. You all have someone you can trust. Somebody that you can call in those moments when that shiny box is getting ready to eat your lunch. First Peter 2, 4, who his own self, Jesus Christ, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Jesus did that for us. And Jesus does not enjoy us living in the pig pen any more than we like it in the pig pen. And he's made a way that we can get out and stay out of the pig pen. First Peter, the next verse, for you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You can go back to God. You can go back to the Father. The last one, the S, is serve. Somebody needs your help. Somebody needs your experience. You know, I don't know how it was in the ladies' purity talk today, but I know how it was on the guy's side. And you saw a man's heart today. And you young folks have no idea what it cost him to tell you that. 
a lot of time, maybe several years getting to that point. And he didn't tell you all that because it was a cool story. He told you all that to try to keep you out of the pig pen he fell into. That's love. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. You know what he did? He became vulnerable. And that means every one of you men that sat in that talk today now have the ability and the power to hurt him. So in essence, he gave his life for you today because he loves you. He's not Jesus Christ. And he may still smell that pig pen, get a little close and smell it. He might even start slipping towards it at some point. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that he knows the solution to get back to the Father's house. And I know that he can help you. Maybe not him personally, but he can help you get to someone else that can help you. Ladies, I don't know what you heard. I don't even know who talked on the women's side. But I suspect that what you heard was a certain level of vulnerability today. And they would have spoken to issues in your hearts that are maybe a little stereotypical to women. Things that maybe most guys don't understand. But they bared their hearts. Why? Because they love you. Because these older ladies back here have probably been in that pig pen themselves or really close to it. Or maybe, just maybe, they have a child in that pig pen. And they don't want it to be you. Something we learned in the men's side is that it's very easy, based on circumstances, to get a skewed view of God. Things go wrong in life and God doesn't look like God anymore. And that becomes very real. In a place like this, if you have a skewed view of God, that God is not standing at the door waiting for you, that God will not clean you up, that God will not help you, I would invite you to talk to some of the older ones tonight. Because the older ones aren't God either. But they represent Him here. And they might be able to help you get a different view of God than you have right now. You know, for, for children, our view of God is in a very, very, very large measure dependent on how our dad acts. If our dad is a tyrant and mean and a bully and a drunk and whatever else, that's a little bit how we're going to see God. If our dad is patient and kind, yes, he's a man, we all know that. But if that's who our dad is, that's how we see God. But I'm telling you tonight that the view of God is the one that the prodigal son told us about. He is always standing at the door waiting for you to come back to the Father. And he is ready to deal with your mess, no matter what that mess may look like tonight.